Hello, I'm Alan Weil. Welcome to A Health Podacy. It's the end of 2020, and we're turning the tables around a little bit here. For this conversation, Jeff Byers, who's usually behind the scenes, is going to be right in front asking me some questions so we can have a conversation about what happened this year, where we're headed, and other items that might be of interest. Jeff, over to you. Alan, nice to be on this side of the microphone. Thanks for having me. And to get things started, um, one of the things we talk about at A Health Podacy is that we're excited to get people from all stages of their career on the show. You are the editor-in-chief of Health Affairs. So one of my first questions was, I was curious how you got interested in health policy. So you're going to date me here because back when I was in graduate school, health policy was not a very big field. There was public health, of course, but I went to policy school, got a master's in public policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. There was one course on healthcare. Of course, there was also health policy going over at the medical school, but again, it was just a different time. My interests were really in social policy. I was interested in employment, in welfare, training. Those were the kinds of things that interested me. That's what I studied when I was in school. That's what I thought I'd work on when I got out. And I sort of fell accidentally into healthcare as it grew in importance. One of the key moments in my professional history is when Bill Clinton was elected president, largely on a campaign for expanding access to health care and health insurance. And uh, I went to work for Governor Roy Romer of Colorado. He was the incoming chair of the National Governors Association, chair of the Democratic Governors Association. And all of a sudden, healthcare was big on the national agenda, and he needed someone to work on it. That's not the whole story, but that's an important part of the story. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So the 90s Clinton campaign for maybe universal health care, is that am I correct in universal health care for that? Yeah. What's really interesting, so you've been there for the ACA, the Clinton campaign, and potentially Medicare for all. So can you give me a little bit about your perspective of how that messaging and how that idea has shaped over the many years? Well, you know, the messaging around healthcare and access to healthcare has really changed. The language of rights is healthcare a right. That's a term that some people find very compelling. Others find it sort of big governmenty. And so willingness to use that phrase and how it's used has really evolved. When Bill Clinton was elected president, it was on the heels of a Senate campaign in Pennsylvania between uh, Harris Wofford, the Democrat, and uh, Dick Thornburg, who was, I believe at the time, had been the U.S. Attorney General. Harris Wofford won that election somewhat by surprise by using the phrase, if a criminal has a right to a lawyer, you should have a right to health care. Now, aside from the fact that that's a little bit of a factual muddle, it really took off on this notion that you could talk about healthcare and access to healthcare as a right. And that surprise victory was a major factor in Bill Clinton picking up healthcare as a leading issue in his campaign. You know, the flip side of it is the tagging of 
expansive policies as socialist, which again has a long history. It was used to fight against Medicare when it was enacted back in the 60s. This notion that sort of anything that the government does in this area is socialism and that it's going to get between you and your doctor. That's another phrase. You know, we're going to put bureaucrats in charge of your health care and interfere with the relationship between you and your doctor. So the substance, of course, has evolved all over the place, but somehow we always go back to these very similar terms that have deep resonance and actually are usually pretty inaccurate, but they're very effective in the political sphere. Yeah, so on that, and maybe this is getting a little bit more on the prediction side of it, like how do you see the idea of Medicare for all? When you hear it talked about in the news, personally, I hear a lot of different ideologies wrapped up into one. So can you give your perspective on that? Yeah, so Medicare for all really is a shorthand, I think, for people on the Democratic side for universal health insurance. They don't really mean Medicare. And they don't always mean for all, but the shorthand kind of works. I mean, Medicare has, for example, very significant deductibles and cost sharing. It has no out-of-pocket maximum. You ask people what they want in a universal plan, they don't want that. They're thinking more Canadian style, even if it's not run the way the Canadians run it, at least they're thinking little or no cost sharing at the time you get services. Uh, Similarly, the proposals are highly variable in who they cover. I think people want something universal, but probably not Medicare for everyone. So yeah, it's evolved a lot and will continue to do so. You know, we we went through a similar dynamic around public option, which was initially part of the Affordable Care Act got taken out in the compromises. And that was again sort of seen as a Medicare-like option for everyone to compete against private insurance. And that was another idea. You could sort of just map whatever you wanted on it. You obviously have been thinking about this and been uh, talking and writing about this subject for, for a long, long time. But there probably comes some some history of, uh, of studying and knowledge and knowledge building in that. So who are some of the thinkers in the healthcare space that have helped informed your uh, perspective? Oh, you know, editors aren't allowed to answer questions like that because we love all of our children equally and we love all of our papers and all of our authors. I'm going to back slightly away from that question and just say that I think much of my reaction to the literature has been to try to counterbalance what I think is the dominance of the economists. And and what I find is that actually in the public sphere, it's the economists who reach beyond traditional economic and econometric methods who become beloved people like the late Uwe Reinhardt, who was on our editorial board, who, you know, is a world-class economist, but was very comfortable infusing values in the conversation in a way that much economic analysis uh, tends to strip out. I've always been struck by the ease with which people say, well, if we just change the incentives, all of these magical things will happen. Well, it is true that changing the incentives changes the pressures and forces and what people focus on. There's absolutely no question. But change occurs in institutions by people doing something different today than they did yesterday. And that involves things like leadership. It involves things like change management. It involves things like investing in infrastructure. And uh, those 
you know, maybe that's uh, the invisible hand, but I, I think often that hand is missing entirely. So for me, the most compelling authors have been those who've been able to jump over the, the more linear economic analysis and ask the question, if this is what we're trying to do, or if this is what we say we want, why aren't we getting there? One of the things we know is healthcare is kind of hard to learn. So I've only been in the space for about 10 years now. You've, you've been in obviously a lot longer. There are some people just starting their careers that are interested in healthcare, it being about a fifth of the economy. So people are interested in the space. What is a, a text or a book um, that you might recommend for them to check out to help understand the intricacies of the healthcare? Yeah, well, so part of the problem is there's no one book. I mean, The uh, Social Transformation of American Medicine uh, by Paul Starr gives a historical sweep of the evolution of the system. Speaking of the system, there's the book, The System, uh, which deconstructs what happened during the uh, debate over the Clinton health plan. So that gives you sort of a closer in view of the politics of healthcare. In shameless promotion, I'll just say that like if you just clicked randomly on a bunch of health affairs blogs, you would get a tremendous insight. And I realize they may be sort of the issue of the day, but each of those issues tends to give you uh, insight into the history and the dynamics at play. That's a great segue when you talk about the issue of the day. So you've been at Health Affairs as Editor-in-Chief since 2014, I believe. Yep, that's right. And uh, Health Affairs has been around for about 40 years. So give or take, you've been uh, at the helm for almost a quarter. We'll say a quarter of its lifespan. I think you're mad. I got to work. We got to work on your math there, but okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But I'm curious, you know, as editor-in-chief, how do you balance the issue of the day versus what you want, whether it's push a, an issue forward that you think is really important or... Um, yeah. How do, you, how do you balance the issue of today versus a scholarly journal? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, you know, one of the things that I think is good to ask and be transparent about is what does it mean to be the editor in chief? I mean, after all, I'm not the one choosing which papers we publish on a day-to-day -day basis or editing those papers on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe I shouldn't admit that. Some people might think that that's what I do, but it is much more about setting the direction and the course. Uh, just in the time I've been here, you know, take two examples. One is growing interest in the so-called social determinants of health, and the other is the growing awareness of the importance of changing the discussion about equity from sort of descriptive measures of differential health outcomes by people's race and ethnicity to a discussion of racism and the need to confront institutional barriers to people living healthy lives. You know, neither of those transformations happened in a day. And our role as a journal is to lead. But, you know, when I was a kid, people complained, of course, this is pre-cable. I really, you know, am dating myself in multiple ways here. But, you know, before cable TV, we only had a few stations. You had to get up and walk across the room to turn the dial. You couldn't, you know, change it remotely. And you couldn't have everyone in your house watching a different channel because there was only one. I grew up, you know, with one black and white TV. So in that world, we had public television. And the, the question is always, why aren't the commercial channels better? You know, why aren't they more educational? Why aren't they more elucidating? And the answer was always, well, you know, 
we're a business and we produce what people want to watch. Well, you know, based on that, that's why we have reality TV and all of those kinds of things, reality shows and things like that. The dynamics are unfortunately similar in a journal, which is if, if we go where our readers aren't interested, then we lose our readers and we can publish all we want. But if no one reads it, what's the point? So you have to think about the direction you're going, but you can't just jump from where you are to where you might want to be. We have a loyal following because we are bar none the best source of peer-reviewed scholarship on the issues of the day, particularly ones that relate to uh, health care delivery and financing and organization. And the blog is the best place to go for commentary on the debates of the day. If we stop doing that, then we lose our assets. So we, we have to move in a direction while remembering from whence we came. No, that's that's uh, a great perspective to hear. And speaking of social determinants, I know you wrote a perspective piece on the blog sometime this year. Uh, and uh, for those of us that haven't read it, can you uh, go into that perspective a little bit? Yeah, so I actually started writing the piece before the killing of George Floyd. And then when he was murdered, it just became impossible to hold it inside. One of the challenges I have is I draft a lot of pieces, but I'm, I have a hard time getting them into final form. And you know, sometimes you just have to say, there's no perfect way to write this. I just need to say it. And this was one of those situations. What I felt needed to be said was that it's great that people are acknowledging now we need to talk about racism. But if we don't talk about power, then we aren't really talking about racism. And racism is a mechanism for sustaining the existing power relationships that benefit whites to the exclusion of others. And I just think that those of us in positions of power, and that's where I count health affairs, and it's where I count myself as the editor-in-chief of health affairs. If we aren't comfortable acknowledging that in order to dismantle racism, we're going to have to give up some of our power, then we're not really being honest about what it's going to take to get from here to where organizations were falling all over themselves saying, it's time for us to do better. I said more than that, but to me, that was the linkage. And it's what's guiding my thinking now in my role, which is how do powerful organizations think seriously about seeding or sharing power, not just diversifying and gaining input and putting a seat at the table for those who have historically not had them, as important as that is, how do we take the next step? That, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, that's a great place to take a break. We're talking with Alan Weil, Editor-in-Chief of Health Affairs on a health policy. Health Affairs may be the leading health policy journal, but did you know we also send a daily newsletter? Sign up for Health Affairs today to catch our daily roundup of news, analysis, and commentary. Topics range from designing value-based payment systems to the latest on COVID-19. And it's free. 
head to www.healthaffairs.org and click newsletter sign up in the menu to join the premier health policy community. And welcome back to A Health Podacy. This is Jeff Byers talking with Alan Weil about uh, the year 2020 and how the organization Health Affairs has changed over the years. And Alan, one of the things uh, we were just talking about, social determinants of health and health equity and equity and power and how that relates to each other. And you made me think about the recent climate issue that Health Affairs published on December 2020. And I was curious, you know, that's a topic that from what I gather, is not normally spoken about in the health policy community. Can you talk about why you chose that topic and what you hope the issue accomplishes? Yeah, so the stars kind of have to align in order for us to do a theme issue. Uh, When people ask, what does it take? I always say it's a combination of an active policy discussion so that people think, oh, this is something I need to read. Um, sufficient scholarship. We, we are an empirical journal. If people are just sort of opining, that's not helpful. But it's also part of our business model. I have to be clear to put on a theme issue is a pretty complicated and expensive undertaking, and we need support for it. So we've been thinking about and hoping and wanting to do this issue for a long time, but it took a while for all three of those pieces to come together. When we do a theme issue, it's a signal to the health policy community that this is a topic that they probably should pay attention to. And we try to expand their thinking. So even for me, who thinks of myself as someone who keeps up in current events, um, I want when I read this issue to have a deeper understanding than I would have otherwise. I've certainly understood that climate change is making severe weather events Uh, worse and more frequent, and you have hospital flooding and damage that that you have to be ready for. But the scale of both the increased health effects of climate and the contribution of the health sector to greenhouse emissions is just much greater than I had realized. And, And I think it gives people points of entry. It's like, oh, well, maybe there's something I could do here. Maybe there's something my institution could do here. We're speaking to leaders and we want the leaders to see that now that they have a different understanding of this topic, maybe there's something different they can do. So this might be a roundabout way to ask the question, but how has the role and speed of research changed since your time at Health Affairs. Yeah, well, COVID-19 has changed everything, right? And we've all seen it. Um, We developed a a fast track process where papers would come in and we would look at them immediately, send them out for review, ask people to review in a matter of days, ask authors to edit within a matter of days, give up some of the editing that we typically do to make papers more readable and sometimes more accurate, and just realize that we had to get the content out the door. And the scientific journals in general pushed more in this direction. It was hard at many levels. It was was hard because people were working really hard. And it was hard because all of those steps that we cut out or shortened are ones that add value. And you don't want to give that up easily. But uh, time really is of the essence in the midst of a a pandemic. Of course, it's 
important from the, for the scientific community to understand the scientific knowledge, but the policy community needed to as well. We were discussing lockdowns. We were discussing masks. We were discussing various public health measures that you need an evidence base for. And actually, there were scholars who were able to very quickly look at indicators, assemble data sets and analyze them and feed them back to uh, the, the policy world. And we were a great part of that. And it, it was very rewarding, as difficult as it's been. We started this podcast in 2020 of this year. Normally, our content is tied to journal articles relating to the months that they're being released. Because of that, we started this with a, there was a lot of content and articles in health affairs in previous editions from this year. Is there any paper that you want to highlight or any insights um, for anyone that might be listening that you, you thought really shone through? Well, I'm going to come out with my top 10 papers for the year any day now. So I'll, I'll save the, the full list for then. And maybe that's probably the best place for me to leave it, actually. I'm going to leave it as a teaser. Fair enough. And uh, looking ahead to 2021, from a policy perspective, what are you interested in or do you have any predictions for 2021? Well, you know, the election is still not settled. And by that, I mean the Senate. I don't mean the presidency. That is settled. But uh, we do still have the two races in Georgia, which will determine control of the U.S. Senate. If those both go to the Democrats, uh, then you add in the vice president and the Democrats have uh, 51 votes, at least at the outset. And things change all the time, as, as we know. But, that, but it does give them an operating majority which not only means that potentially they have the votes if everyone stays in line, but also they get to set the calendar. And even though the margin is also quite narrow in the House, uh, you could see a legislative agenda uh, coming together. If without those two, without either one of those two seats, it's not that you'll never see a majority coming together, but you don't set the calendar. And, and that puts a lot of power in Senator McConnell to decide what you know, he thinks is, is uh, something he wants to bring forward. The bottom line is, given the narrowness of the margins, I would not anticipate an ambitious health care agenda, uh, just like the Republicans ran on a platform of repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, and then even when in the majority were unable to do so because they couldn't figure out what that really meant. The more ambitious elements of the Democratic Party platform, whether it's uh, all the way to Medicare for all that we discussed at the outset or something like a public option, the design elements of those are very complex. And the, the thought that you're really going to pull together every member of the Democratic Party to agree on them, I think, you know, it's possible, but that's a stretch. So I think we're entering an, a, a period of modest legislating and an administration that's going to probably be quite aggressive administratively, just like the Trump administration was aggressive administratively in trying to dismantle parts of the Affordable Care Act that they didn't like. And the fact is that after four years of an administration that really has done you know, as much as it could to dismantle a law that it couldn't effectively repeal, there's a lot of uh, repair work to be done to bring the law sort of back to what it was intended to do even before you think about expansion. So I think that's a place to look. People always, you know, I used to run the National Academy for State Health Policy. When there's not a big federal agenda, everyone's like, oh, the states, the states, the states. Well, 
States are always working on health policy. But again, let's be honest, the states have their hands full right now with COVID response. State treasuries are not as bad as we thought they would be at the beginning of the pandemic because it's a horrible situation. But the economic harms right now are falling disproportionately to poorer people. And so the wealthier folks are still able to pay taxes. But still, I I think state hands are pretty full right now. Of course, we'll see creativity there. But again, it's a little hard for me to envision a major uh, aggressive, ambitious agenda coming out of the states in the next couple of years. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up our conversation. Um, but before we go, I'd uh, like to note that uh, we're, we're all going to be waiting for your uh, top 10 articles. Uh, we started this podcast um, in October. We have a head of print articles coming out this year. So Health Fairs has been really busy. But is there anything else you want to highlight uh, that we may not have talked about? Yeah, I want to say what a lucky person I am today to be able to turn uh, the microphone around, if you will, and have you ask questions and to acknowledge that all of you who've been listening to A Health Policy may not be aware of the critical role, Jeff, you play in making it happen. And it's nice to give you the microphone. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And on that, that's a great place to wrap up. And uh, we'll see you next time. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Brian Dobbs, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.